Ah, there you go. All right. Um, so, yeah, my friends in Ireland, they, um, they like to make fun of me. Um, they, they say I have a cowboy accent. <laughs> and in fact, uh, one friend of mine who's a worship leader, he said, you are the cowboy of worship. And I'm like, dude, seriously. <laughs> At home, they call me Spicoli. I don't know why you would call me a cowboy, but they're all like, y'all. How you doing, y'all? Like, you've never heard me say that in your life, <laughs> and you won't. Um, I, uh, my voice is a little tired. I, I'm, I'm here, actually, because a friend of mine that I've known since the first grade, he called me up and he said, hey, I, I know you're in Ireland, and I know it's a long way, but I'm getting married, and would you officiate? And I said, absolutely, I would officiate. And so I came out here, and I was prepared to do the service, and, um, and then at the rehearsal, then there's this part where they're going to be pouring sand into a vase, and it's very nice. And, and then the bride goes, could you play a song while we're doing this? I'm like, well, like Reverend Tim Tom? I'm a guitar guy? No, I don't want to do that. And she's like, but you could. And I said, okay, I will totally do that. And so there I was. It looked odd. So it, it's, a, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a combining family. So the husband and wife are there, and the kids are there, and, and there's this long-haired pastor strapped to a guitar, and it, it looked like an episode of Full House. It was terrible. <laughs> um, but we got through it. But I'm a little tired, so bear with me. If I cough, I'm sorry. Don't lick this microphone. Um, I, uh, I grew up here in Reno, and... Um, my family and I moved to Sparks in 1980, and I was there, gosh, forever, it seemed. My dad is a pastor, and, um, and my grandfather is a pastor, and I swore I would never be a pastor. Um, but uh, growing up in it, I actually became somewhat um, injured by church. Um, you know, church is made up of people, and people can be awesome and people can be less awesome. And so I had, seen, um, I had seen the church get injured by a previous pastor and then kind of chew up my parents, and I really didn't want anything to do with it. And um, funny how God works. He, he likes to put us back in the things that we don't want to do. And, um, and he got a hold of my life. And over the course of time, and I, I married my, my bride, and... And we ended up moving back, and we were planning only to be here for a year. And in that year, God started to turn my heart, and he started to call me to the ministry. And that was in 2001. And so I was in church ministry for 15 years up in Reno, and um, the last eight of which were at a church plant called Life Church uh, that is going very well. Um, and, uh, but church planning is hard, and beginning is hard, and sometimes it feels like it's just you and the world, you against the world, and it is. It's you and Jesus against the world, and it's, uh, these are the good old days. So when it gets hard, when it starts to suck, just take a deep breath and say, these are the good old days, because there will be a time when we'll be like, wow, 
look at all the work that we have to do. Remember when we were just in that little shopping center and that was the good old days. I mean, that's what it'll be. Just like being married, right? Um, yeah. I had no idea how nice it was until I had kids. And I realized how nice it is and how nice it was too. Um, so uh, while we were at Life Church, God started to stir in us and, and I was... Um, I was heading over our worship ministry, and the worship ministry was great, and it, and it was thriving, and it was fun. And then God started to, he started to knock on us a bit. And in that process of knocking on us, what he started to do was that he started to show us that what he wanted us to do is that he wanted us to step outside the church. The church was great. Everything was fine. We loved the church. There was no problem with that. But he wanted the ministry to step outside of the church. And, and we were unsure of what that meant. And then what we found was that he kind of baby-stepped us. We started getting calls from other churches asking if we had musicians that we could share a particular Sunday. It's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Asking if we could spare a guitar amp or something. Sure, no problem, we'll send it out. Asking if we could come and lead worship for a retreat or whatever. And he got us to the point where we said, you know what? God, this obviously is something you want to do. We won't say no. We'll say yes first. We won't say no. If they love you, you brought, us, you brought them to us, we will say yes all the time. And Ben, our drummer, he remembers that time. There were many times I was like, hey, Ben, I, I, yeah, I, I know you love the church. I need you to go somewhere else. I need you to go play over here. They need you. And, um, and then we thought that was great. But then one of our leaders came up and he said, so I got us a gig. And I said, okay, cool. What, what's the gig? And he goes, the gig is in a bar. I said, we're playing in a bar? He's like, yeah, I, I didn't say no. And I said, okay. And, and so we found ourselves going into this bar and playing not even worship music. We were playing cover tunes. And originally we went for the free pizza. And then, <laughs> but then what happened was that we started to realize that there were musicians there that we never would have met before. There were people in that bar we never would have met in church. And that gig started to become, for us, it was a vessel. And we were praying, God, we're going to go and we're going to have fun and we're going to do this, but we want... We want you to bring us a conversation. We want to meet somebody who needs you. We want to meet somebody who's willing to talk about spiritual things. We're looking for a person of peace. And he started to do that. And then in the process of that, some of the other musicians from the other churches found out what we were doing, and they were saying, can we do that? I was like, come on. We won't say no. And so not before long, what I found myself being is that I was... Um, pastoring a bunch of creatives and, and artists that were worshiping creatives and artists and directing them on mission to reach other creatives and artists that were not yet worshipers. And it was the greatest thing ever. And because we were doing all this work, man, Sunday was awesome. <laughs> Sunday was really fun. And the pastor's very happy because Sunday's fun, and he knew what we were doing. And then God said, something's up. Something's going to change. 
I was like, I don't want it to change. I'm pretty happy. And, and he's, he said, no, something's going to change. And then I found, I, I was flying in, and I got a text, and it said, hey, I hope your passport is ready, because we're going to Ireland in two weeks. And it was from another pastor of the church, and we were going over there to do a video project. And I went, wow, that's cool. I never, ever thought I'd go to Ireland. Awesome. Guinness factory. That's what I, that's what I thought. <laughs> and it's like the Willy Wonka factory of, it's amazing. And so I, uh, I went, and I'm here to, to shoot video, and, and one thing he was showing me was that um, there were musicians and creatives everywhere. It, the creative and worship, or not worship, but the, the musician community in Dublin is as prolific, is as huge as you would find in Nashville or Austin, Texas. It's just huge. They're everywhere. And when you're on the street and you see 10 people, six of them are going to be musicians. And then you go to a supermarket and you see 10 people, six of them are going to be musicians. And you go to a restaurant, six of them, well, you go to a pub and they're probably all going to be musicians. But <laughs> and that's how it is in Nashville and that's how it is in Austin. However, in the process of what we were doing, we were interviewing other pastors and we were interviewing missionaries there and we were going into the churches. And we would go and worship with these churches, and these churches were not small churches in the grand scheme of Dublin. These were some of the top five largest churches. Now, when I say that, and remember this because there'll be a quiz, the one church had 150 people. The other church had 70. Okay? And this was in the top five. One church was a vineyard church. Now, if you're going to find musicians, you're going to find it in a vineyard church. And I found that there were people who were playing in the band. But these were not the same people who were in the musician community. And at the other church, I found one guy. And so when you're in Nashville, 10 people on the supermarket, six of them are musicians. 10 people on the street, six are musicians. 10 people in a church, six are musicians. That is the ratio of the city. In Dublin... You've got 10, 6, 10, 6, 10, none. And that didn't make any sense to me. And then the other thing that didn't make any sense to me was that these two churches that we visited, they were a 10-minute walk apart. 10-minute walk. Now, that's 10-minute Ireland for us to be like 15, 20, because they're fast. <laughs> but a 10-minute walk of each other, and I tell you what, those musicians didn't know each other at all. I was talking to them, and they didn't know each other. And it's, it's not unusual for churches that are really close not to know each other. That's not unusual. But musicians, that's highly unusual because we're always like, okay, we're playing over here, and our drummer just got sick. All right, who do we know? That you network. That's what musicians do. That's what they do in Dublin. But in the churches, they didn't know each other. And so I was wrestling with that. I was like, God, I don't understand. What's going on? Why, why is it that when I go to church, I don't see the ratio? And then why is it that the, the musicians that I do find, they don't even know each other? There aren't that many of them. What's going on? And I was wrestling with it and wrestling with it and wrestling with it for a week. And finally, I was like, God, all right, just give me the answer. I can't figure this out. You just tell me. And I was sitting there eating. And he did. And he said, the reason you're not seeing them in churches is because they don't know how to reach that group. It's a, it's a separate people group. Just like a language tribe, it's a separate people group, and there's no one reaching them. They don't understand how to do that. 
And I said, okay, well, what about how they don't know each other? If there aren't that many of them, why don't they know each other? That doesn't make sense. And he said, because they don't understand the importance of coming together and worshiping in mass. And you know what that means. And I went, yeah, I know what that means. Because just prior to that, God had been really hammering on us worship as warfare. And one thing that he had us doing is that we were basically preaching that message everywhere. And the musicians that were coming to play, they were going to their churches and they were talking about it too. And Reno is a place now where the worshipers understand we have to worship on behalf of our city, on behalf of ministries like Awaken, on behalf of all the other churches, because God needs to move here. And I went, yeah, no one's worshiping on behalf of Dublin. And he goes, yeah. And then I just very mindlessly said out loud, well, I'm definitely not called here. <laughs> but if I were, I know what my job would be. And my friend goes, what would your job be? And I said, well, my job would be to get in amongst the worshiping community and help them understand the importance of worshiping in in an intercessory way on behalf of their city. And also to help them understand the importance that they need to fish this pond that only they're equipped to do. And then to get in to this larger network and be a pastor among them. And disciple people before they realize they're being discipled, win them to Christ, start building fellowship groups. And I, man, it was just popping, it was just coming out. And he goes, that's weird that you know all this stuff, but you're not called to be here. And I went, yeah, that is weird. <laughs> and I didn't think about it for a while. And then we got home, and then it became clear that God was releasing us from our church. And Marianne and I were both feeling that quite, quite specifically, but we didn't know to what. And so we were keeping it very quiet because, you know, I want to freak people out. And, and so we're praying about what he wants us to do. And... Of course, my pastor is one of my closest friends. He figured it out. And he's like, what's going on? And I, I told him, God's released us. We don't know to what. And he said, take some time. Figure it out. What's God telling you? Don't make any decisions. Let me, you know, keep me in the loop. But figure it out. Then let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. I said, okay. Took a sabbatical. Nothing. Oh, it was defeating. It was so defeating. And then I'm, I'm back in the saddle. And on a Sunday, God tells Marianne, who was home with a sick kid, it's Dublin. What I didn't realize was that he had been telling her that and she had been shoving that. Like, it can't be that. And why that's interesting is because he was doing the same thing to me and I was doing the same thing as she was. And so we finally talked and she goes, I got to come clean. This is what's going on. And he flatly told me we're going to Dublin. And I went, oh, no. And... And then he started to make it personal for me as well. In that moment, tears are coming down my face. And then she goes, so we're going to Dublin. Why? I don't get it. What are we going to do in Dublin? Are we just going to get jobs? What are we doing? And I went, oh. Oh, I know. <laughs> and then I told her. And then she went, seriously, how long have you been sitting on that one? <laughs> And so that's what we're doing. And we, uh, we moved to Dublin uh, in November. 
and um, we have three kids. Uh, Pele, who is 13, and he is now in high school. That is crazy. That's how they do it there. Mila, who is nine, and has me completely wrapped around her finger. And Satchel, who is a straight tornado, and he is five years old, and as precocious as it gets. And, and we are there, and we are adapting to life and culture there. And I'll tell you what. There are many people who kind of see God as an architect. They kind of see God as one who is this great planner of things, and he set everything in motion, and then he watches it unfold. There are theologians that might even tell you that. But what I'm here to tell you is that God's more like a pipe bomb. (laughs) And what God will do is that he will just blow up in your life. He'll completely blow up in your life. And when he does that, you get wrecked in ways you didn't know could be so beautiful. And he wrecked us. He got us to a point where we had no confidence in ourselves. We had no way of making provisions even for ourselves. We had sold everything because Ireland's little and we live very big. And, and I remember standing there going, looking at seven pallets worth of stuff. Seven pallets. And one of them wasn't even mine. It was a buddy of mine. He's like, can you bring me a barbecue? I was like, okay, sure. So seven pallets worth of stuff, and all I could think was, how are we going to do this? How are we going to live with so little? I feel naked. I got seven pallets and a suitcase full of clothes. That's what I've got. And then we get there, and God is amazing. He is amazing. He makes five loaves and two fish come into this huge feast. That's what he does. And so I leave this house which is 2,700 square feet with five people, and I thought it was small. <laughs> and we live in a 1,300 square foot house with, four, with five people, and my, my room is tiny, and it feels big. And he changed everything in us, and when that seven pallets, it took, it took two months for the seven pallets to show up. Seven pallets show up, and they dump it on my driveway, and all I could think was, how are we going to live with so much crap? <laughs> I don't have any room for this. And it's true, I didn't have any room for it. Um, and what we're doing now is that we are a part of a church, and, and with that church, we have started to get into the worshiping community. Just, just gaining some street cred, just gaining some credibility. And it's starting to happen. And it's not just in our church, but we've been called upon to do concerts around the city, worship gatherings around the city. I was asked to, to uh, sit in with a band, to join a band that they didn't need me. And everybody was like, really, they called you? Yeah. Call me to play guitar. I'm not even good at that. And God just shows up. He just shows up. And then on the other side, we are trying to get into the musician community, and it's not, it's not easy, but we're 
making connections and making friends. For me, I'm going into where the, the bar musicians would be, into the guitar shops, into the pubs. That's what I am. I mean, look at me. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> My wife, who is the human embodiment of a Ferrari, she is going for the classical music scene. She is a trained opera singer. And so she, she is starting to build relationships in that, in that genre. And, and that is what he's called us to do. And it's going to take shape in any way he, he decides it's going to manifest. That's, that's just the way it's going to be. But the strategy that he's given us is that we are going to walk among them and we are going to start discipling them. Now, if you look, Jesus spent three years with 12 stinky dudes that weren't smart. These were not smart guys. If they were smart, they would have already been with rabbis. That's how their system was. And he spent three years with them, pouring into them, discipling them, talking to them about life in the kingdom, talking to them about what is going to happen in his plan for restoring the world. And they weren't Christians yet. He spent all that time with them, and they didn't become a Christian until after he rose. And then they got it. So we look at that, and we go, okay, we're just going to start discipling. And how you do that, the first thing about evangelism is that it's, it's worship. Evangelism is worship. Because if, if, if you're bragging on God, and you're telling all the stuff that he is and everything he's done for you, you are actually evangelizing to somebody. You don't have to give them the full Romans road to stand in front of them and start evangelizing them so that they start to understand who God is. We'll get there. But Jesus didn't give them the Romans road. That was Paul. So... We, we walk among them, and we vigilantly stand by. And one thing I love is that in, in Luke 15, the prodigal son, and it said the son, the son had it really good, and he rejected his dad, and he's like, Dad, you're, you're pretty much dead to me. I'd like to consider you that, so could you just give me my inheritance? I'll be gone. You don't have to bother with me again. And he goes and he blows it. He blows it all, because that's what we do. We blow it. And then he gets to the point where he's like, Man, even, even my dad's servants live better than this. And since I called him dead, maybe I could go to him and say, all right, I, I'm a dead son, but could I be your servant? And so he makes his way back home. And what's really cool is that the father, whose job it is to make the household run, that's his function. He wasn't just lounging at home watching all in the family. That's his function. And what was he doing? He was vigilantly standing by and watching the road. He was watching because he knew his kid was lost, and he was watching to see if he's going to come back. Vigilantly looking, and that's what we are called to do. And, and so we, we study the word, and we get ingrained in the word, and we let it saturate our lives and we let the Holy Spirit saturate our lives and we learn what it means to trust in his love and trust his direction and obey. We learn all these things and then, and then we become raconteurs of gospel. And 
when someone comes up and they start talking about an injury that they had or a struggle that they've had, because we've done all of this, then we'd say, well, this is what the gospel says about it. This is, what, this is how Jesus actually fits into that. And we contextualize it to them. And everybody, we all know someone who needs to be restored to Christ. We know our nation needs to be restored to Christ. Well, if any nation needs to be restored, it's Ireland. When we went to Ireland, we had no idea why we were going to Ireland, other than that's what he told us to do. But why would you go to Ireland, which all I can think of is nothing but churches? Sure, it's Catholic, but that's the Bible. What, why do they need that? And what we found out was that Ireland, Ireland's kind of a rough place. Here, people know the gospel. People have heard it. They've gone to church, and they're like, yeah, that's not for me. Over there, they don't even know the gospel. Because what they know is that church is part of culture, and church has done some pretty nasty things. Now, when St. Patrick came in and he started discipling in an amazing way, and if, if you have a chance to look it up, I, I recommend it. He used beer brewers. I, I think that's genius. Um, but when he did that and he discipled them and they became a nation under God, they truly did. And then England started to colonize very imperialistically, they started to colonize. And the king, what he was big on was his own church, the Church of England. And so these Protestants started coming in. And they're like, whoa, what's going on? We don't, we're not for that. This is, they were an organic church. They weren't for the Church of England. And they certainly weren't all about getting conquered like the English were planning to do. And so that's where the tension was. So if in five minutes... It takes all of five minutes for an Irish person to figure out if you're Catholic or if you're Protestant, assuming you're another Irish person. Because it's in your name, it's in your demeanor, it's in whatever. And if you tell me that you're Catholic, then what that says to me as an Irish person, it says to me that your family lineage is native. And it says to me that you fully believe in an autonomous Ireland. An Ireland that is void of conquerors, conquistadors, English. And if, if, if I gather that you're Protestant, what that says to me is that your family lineage is not native. Your family lineage at some point comes from elsewhere, and you probably don't care much about an autonomous, free, independent Ireland. You're probably not nationalistic. And if you put a Protestant and a Catholic together and you ask them about the theological differences in their faith, they won't be able to tell you because it's not about that. It's about culture. It's about culture. It's about what this church did to this church. It's about how these people fought these people. It's about how these people were prejudiced and discriminating against these people. It is horrible, and there are atrocities on either side of the fence, and they have no idea about Jesus. They have no idea about Jesus. And, and then to make it worse, then to make it worse, in the last few years, we have come to understand what kind of evils and abuses have been happening within the Catholic Church in terms of abuse, exploitation. We're aware of these things now. The Irish have known about it for generations. And in many cases, in many cases, 
because no one ever wanted to be excommunicated. Eyes were averted. Cheeks were turned. People were ruined. We had a, our neighbor who grew up Catholic, and he's, he doesn't practice at all whatsoever, not even at Christmas time. He came to us and he said, if you want to know why I don't go to church, watch the movie Spotlight. And we watched it. And he goes, that's why I don't go to church. And the crazy thing was, I, I kind of heard about it, and then I watched Spotlight and saw how huge it was. And then at the very end, it talks about how these cities, there were massive scandals found, uncovered in these cities. And none were in Reno. None were in Nevada. The nearest one was in Sac. And I went, huh. And then it started doing the worldwide cities. And in Ireland, a country which is smaller than the state of Indiana and has as many people as the state of Indiana, no fewer than eight cities had these scandals in them. And that's pretty much all our major cities, eight of them. And so the, the climate there actually is very irreligious. They want nothing to do with church. They want nothing to do with the tension, with the war, with the factions. They want nothing to do with these things. They just want to get on. And it, uh, George Barna, the group, they decided to go, and in 2012, they did a survey of irreligion. They wanted to see who was either agnostic or atheistic, who, who totally was against anything. And they asked a question, and one of the big key questions was, does faith play a part in your everyday life? And in Ireland, the land of saints and scholars, 53% of them said absolutely not. And what was very interesting was that after doing this survey, Ireland found itself tied for number 10 in the most atheistic countries of the world. It's tiny. It's tiny. And I tell you what's weird. I lived in Reno, and Washoe County, amongst, amongst the American church, was always seen as a problem county because we had, by their figures, less than 5% professing Christians in our whole county. And I was like, yeah, whatever. That's okay, I'm used to that. Because I know, I, I never really feel like a minority. I never really feel like no one else goes to church. And over there, you do. I live in a city that has two million people. Two million people. And on Facebook, I'm watching people go to a conference that was happening in Roseville. And they were at this big church in Roseville, Bayside. And it is packed wall to wall with church leaders. And it's amazing. There's probably about 7,000 people at Thrive probably about 7,000 church leaders at Thrive. And all I could think was, there might be that many evangelicals in my city. There might be. It's struggling. It's truly struggling. Even the Catholic Church is struggling. It's, we have maybe 25 to 30 churches 
in all of Dublin. The largest one now is about 500 people. The second largest one has about 350. And then they dwindle from there down into the teens. And that's in a city of two million people. They're hurting. They're hurting. They don't understand that Jesus actually can free them from their pain. They don't understand that Jesus can actually renew their minds, renew their scars. He can actually bring peace to a country that has needed peace for so very long. And now there's a new invader. And the the new invader is Islam. And we are scheduled in the next 10 years to have another six to 700,000 people in our city. And it's not because we're having babies. It's because of an influx of immigration. And what happens is that they come in and they start to intermarry. And this is really hard. Because every year in the country of Ireland, which is no bigger than the state of Indiana, 500 Irish people, typically women, get converted to Islam. That's one every 17 and a half hours. In a country that is no bigger than Indiana, which, to put it in perspective, if, if we here to Ely and north, it would fit in that. It's tiny, and they're everywhere. My daughter didn't get, she, she has friends in class, but she said, I just found out that there was a party and I wasn't invited, and everyone else was. And we're like, really? And what made it worse was after it came out that she knew, she still wasn't invited. And we said, well, whose party was it? And she started telling us the names, and we're like, Oh, Mila, it's because they're all Muslims. They're not allowed to really play with the outside of class. To which she went, oh, okay, I'm good then. She thought it was a rejection. But they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And Ireland is a place that, Ireland is a place that once lived and breathed and made music and poetry about the glories of Jesus Christ. And now they forgot who he is. They, they, it's not even that they forgot, they don't even know. They don't even know. And so that's what we are called to do. And God is definitely moving. He's definitely moving. In the last six months, um, many times, because we're Americans and we want to do everything, it feels like we're not doing much. And yet, Jem, the organization that we are with, they have said to us, you're doing a ton in six months. And our Irish friends have said, this is weird. You should not be received like this. And we're like, okay, well, we're just riding the wave. And that's what God is doing. And, and I hope to come back in a, a year or two years and, and tell you the crazy things that he has done. And I expect to. But I would really like for you to consider Ireland when you're praying. I'd really like for you to consider Ireland when you are thinking about reaching the world. And I would really like for you to consider Ireland and the hurt and the pain because it's there and it's there in everybody. My next door neighbor told me to watch a movie about abuse and that was his reason why he didn't go to church. That's hard. 
are people that are hurting. There are people that are needy. And Jesus is the answer. There's a beauty in Jesus that church can't touch. There's a beauty in Jesus that wars can't touch. There's a beauty in Jesus that bad theology can't touch. There is a beauty in Jesus that when they see it, they really see it, they'll be free. And that's why we're there. When we were there, our church asked us, mind you, after four months of being there, to play, which was really weird for us. And we found out that we were fast-tracked. That was the fast track, waiting four months. And, um, and so we played a song called Future Past. And the song is, um, it talks about how Jesus is our future and our past. He is the Lord of both. He's the beginning and the end. And I, did, I love the song, and that's why I brought it to play. But what I didn't realize was how much they were going to love the song because the church recognized our past was Jesus, and now we're in this lull, and we know that he's our future. And so I'd, I'd like it if we could sing it. Could we do that? Guys, you want to come help me?